When the polar vessel of the privately funded Australasian Antarctic expedition became trapped in ice last Christmas, it triggered a dramatic international rescue operation that diverted ships. As this Radio New Zealand Insight program has been finding out, the rescue efforts delayed the research programs of four nations and could result in changes to the rules governing shipping in Antarctic waters. I remember going up onto the bridge and uh, looking out through the front of the ship and we were surrounded by ice and the captain was slowly pushing on top of ice uh, flows and then reversing back and pushing to try and get through. At that point we thought we would wake up in the morning and be back out in the sea but that was not the case and then when we got up in the morning uh, we were surrounded by ice. The motors were still running, the captain was trying to still keep um, water, a small edge of water around the ship by moving us a little but the next morning he'd turn the engine off because there wasn't any point he'd realise that we were not going anywhere. That morning was Christmas Eve. The polar vessel academic Shukowski had spent the previous day close to the shore of the East Antarctic coast. On board were 22 crew and 52 passengers including scientists, paying tourists and expedition staff. During the afternoon, many were out on the sea ice, exploring a small cluster of rocky hillocks called the Hodgman Islands. But then the ice began to move in. By 8.30 in the morning of Christmas Day, the ship's captain had sent out a distress call. The subsequent rescue effort involved ships from four nations, took almost two weeks to complete, cost $2.5 million and triggered a heated debate about whether it was avoidable. I'm Veronica Maduna from Our Changing World and this insight explores the long-term impacts the incident could have on science, tourism and shipping in Antarctica. Antarctica is one of the last wilderness areas and home to wildlife which would not survive anywhere else. Although it is the only continent with no permanent habitation, this frozen land may hold the key to human survival as it drives the world's climate and global ocean circulation. For scientists, it provides an ideal place to study climate, evolution, ecology and astronomy. And it was the opportunity to take part in research projects that attracted paying passengers to the Australasian Antarctic Expedition, or AAE. For Kayleen Lawson, this was her second voyage to the frozen continent. I've been once before on a large cruise ship where we sailed past the um, Antarctic Peninsula, but we didn't have the opportunity to get out and, and close and personal. So this trip for me was that opportunity to actually step foot on Antarctic land, I guess, or, or ice, and to get more close up and personal with the, the wildlife and to learn something about the science as well, which interested me. As it happened, there were fewer opportunities to get off the ship than some of the passengers had hoped for. The expedition set out to retrace the voyage of Australian explorer Douglas Mawson a century earlier. During the days before the vessel became trapped, the expedition visited the historic huts from that original expedition. Reaching the huts required a 60-kilometre journey on snow vehicles across fast ice, and the expedition leaders decided to take only the science teams and one passenger. The next stop, the Hodgman Islands, was not on the original itinerary. But Taylor Thompson Fuller, who at 19 was the youngest of the paying passengers, believes the expedition leaders, University of New South Wales scientists Chris Turney and Chris Fogwell and experienced Antarctic guide Greg Mortimer, were under pressure to provide an excursion. Because of the failure to get all of, all of the paying passengers to Commonwealth Bay. But, you know, at the time, 
none of the paying passengers knew. We didn't even contemplate that we were in a tricky position. I don't think we didn't understand the consequences of going to Hodgman Islands if things did go wrong. When the captain became worried about the ship's safety and called everybody back on board, two all-terrain vehicles began to relay groups of passengers to the vessel. Taylor Thompson Fuller was one of the last group left on the ice, along with another passenger, a paramedic, and the expedition leader, Chris Turney. Everybody was told to come back to the ship. As I later found out, we really needed to get back to the ship. I didn't realise at the time, but everybody was in a flurry getting onto the Argos and getting onto the quad bikes, but not everybody could fit. So I was just standing there and I said, look, we're happy to stay behind. Well, I got picked to stay behind. And we were like, all right, so what are we going to do? And Chris told us, you know, look, everything's fine. I just have to stay here for hopefully an hour to 45 minutes to an hour and a half. They'll take everybody back and then they'll come back for us. I didn't feel worried at all. I, um, not until after the fact, until I started to think about what could have actually gone wrong at the time that I started to freak out. At the time, we felt perfectly safe. We felt, you know, look, we're within shooting distance of the boat. Eight kilometres away, we could walk back if we really got into a desperate position. The original plan was to use three vehicles to ferry passengers between the ship and the islands, but one of them took in water and became unusable, which caused delays in the operation. On top of that, some passengers claimed there was a communications breakdown between team leaders on board and those on the ice. Kayleen Lawson says the ship's entrapment may have been avoided if the evacuation had been carried out faster. Two hours later, we were completely surrounded by ice. So four hours would have made a big difference, I think. I mean, I'm not an expert, but from my observation, ice was surrounding us within one to two hours uh, of us leaving. So if we'd left four hours earlier or three hours earlier, even two hours, um, we may not have got stuck. My personal opinion is it wasn't bad luck at all. (laughs) It was poor judgment. Another passenger, Barbara Tucker, supports this view, saying that the chain of command within leadership was blurred and passengers were not given enough instructions regarding safety procedures such as dealing with tidal cracks in the ice or blizzard survival. But expedition leader Chris Turney maintains that the academic Zhukowski was caught up in a mass breakout of sea ice with some blocks more than three metres thick, which was frustrating but ultimately unpredictable. Well, I think operating in Antarctica, you always have that element of risk regardless of where you work. Now, the simplest explanation uh, would be that no one ever goes down to Antarctica to do any work. As soon as you make that decision that you want to go down and do research and try to understand how the planet works and Antarctica's role in that, that carries an inherent level of risk. Now, you try to manage that and mitigate that as much as possible, and we, we feel we did so. We took regular satellite observations. Uh, we looked at what the sea ice was doing. We were taking regular weather forecasts from numerous sources as well. And there was nothing there to indicate that something was going to move very quickly our direction. Ultimately, we had a fantastic team with a wealth of experience, decades of experience on the leadership. And everyone felt, from the captain through to the, uh, the leaders, including uh, Chris Fogwell and Greg Mortimer, um, and myself, that uh, that was perfectly fine to operate in that area. But uh, Antarctica has that habit of um, catching people um, off guard, no matter what you, how much preparation you do. The AAE was a privately funded expedition, and the academic Shukalski was subchartered from the Christchurch-based company Heritage Expeditions, which has since taken the vessel back to Antarctica on a commercial tourism voyage to the Ross Sea. 
One of the company's expedition leaders, Aaron Russ, says Heritage Expeditions has not been offering any voyages to the Commonwealth Bay Area, which was the main destination for the Mawson expedition. He says they stopped a few years ago when an iceberg known as B-9B blocked access and stopped the sea ice from thawing in summer. But, he says, given the same information the expedition leaders had, he would probably have done the same and gone ahead with a trip onto the ice. Based on my um, my time in Antarctica, and I've been leading expeditions down there for over 10 years and, and visiting for over 20, is I cannot honestly say that I, I wouldn't have gone into those circumstances. It's always the multi-million dollar question as to what you would and wouldn't have done. And, um, yeah, I, I don't believe that I can categorically say that I um, wouldn't have gone in based on the, the information that I um, have available. It was... Maybe uh, because the expedition with the AAE had other other aims and outcomes, the um, what they did and, and where they went and things might have been slightly different to if we were looking at it as a as a passenger expedition. But yeah, I, I don't think that um, there's there's anything that was in the data that I had um, or that I've seen that they had to hand, which was um, was a real um, significant red flag that um, would have, would have stopped me. Um, in my tracks. The private funding model is not new. In fact, it goes back a hundred years to the heroic era of Antarctic exploration when expeditions led by Scott, Shackleton, Mawson and others had to raise funds from patrons and the public. What is new in this case is that the people whose money contributed to making the voyage possible travelled south themselves as research assistants. For expedition leader Chris Turney, that's a win-win situation, as it supports science that might otherwise not be funded and engages the public. In many Western nations, we're actually seeing a decline in the amount of money putting, being put into science. Now, we know from numerous studies, particularly in the UK and elsewhere, that uh, science, investment in science is good for the economy. But at the end of the day, we're seeing less and less money going into science. Now, as a scientist, you have two options. You can either stay at home and ruminate on this if you don't achieve your funding, or you can look for alternative sources of finance to support your work. Now, as a team, we felt that area of East Antarctic, Commonwealth Bay, Vermeerse, Polinia, is incredibly exciting, and there's key questions to be asked. And the beautiful thing about doing that is that you're actually engaging the public. You're trying to get them excited about the science you're doing, and that means actually not just telling them what you found as a result of government funds, but actually turning around and saying, look, let's have a conversation about how science works. I think our trip was a bit of a pioneering trip, and there were things that, you know, obviously, you know, not getting stuck is a, a good start, but things could have been done differently. Janet Rice is one of the paying passengers, and for her, the model worked well. I really like the fact that it was it's you know democratizing access to science so that for, you know for someone like me that you know is really interested in it and really interested in getting getting to Antarctica you have those opportunities and you, it means that you've got people you know who do care about nature and are passionate about it to to add to the 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 science that's being done there and also then to be passionate advocates for that science and for Antarctica when they get back into their their normal lives and I think that in terms of, you know, the level of training that perhaps, you know, volunteers in this sort of expedition should undertake before we go, I think maybe that, you know, that would be something to, to learn from it so that there was a sense that, that people were prepared for, for the sorts of things that can go wrong in Antarctica that you have to be prepared for, you know, the, the whole Ant Antarctica, the, the A factor, things going wrong um, and not as planned. So I think that, that probably is a lesson to be learnt, but I think it, it doesn't 
um, doesn't mean that we've got to you know, not continue on and, and further develop the model. Ships get trapped in Antarctic ice regularly, but they don't always issue a distress call. Often they just sit it out. But when a mayday is issued, the rescue authority responsible for the area will call on any ships close by, no matter what country's flags they carry, to help. In this case, the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, or ASMA, diverted icebreakers from the Chinese, French, Australian and US national programs. The authority's search and rescue region covers an area of nearly 53 million square kilometres. But the academic Shukarski rescue was the biggest in three seasons. As part of issuing the permit for the expedition, the Australian Antarctic Division assessed its environmental impact but was not required to assess the risk or the scientific goals. The Australian Antarctic Division's own ship, the Aurora Australis, was on its way to resupply one of the Australian Antarctic bases when it was diverted. Ten days after the academic Shukarski became trapped, all passengers and the expedition team, but not the crew, were airlifted to the Australian icebreaker, which then completed its resupply mission and returned to Hobart. Australia's Antarctic Division has shouldered the cost of the rescue, but the acting director, Nick Gales, says it will do its best to recoup the money and limit the impact on the Australian research programme in Antarctica. When something major comes along that is unforecast, like this, where the ship simply has to stop doing whatever activity it's involved in, and moves away doing something else for days or weeks, then it, the effects of that time cascade through the whole summer season. So we have to start changing everything, and we have a group here that do their very best to minimise the impact on other projects. So that's, that's, in a way, the kind of the way we operate. At the time of this rescue, the Aurora Australis was off one of our mainland stations, Casey Research Station, and uh, was in the midst of a resupply, and it was bringing in critical you know, equipment for running of the station as well as people and equipment for the science that we were running through that summer. And so that resupply was simply interrupted when, whenever um, a ship is tasked with a rescue, as, as we were by the Australian Maritime Safety Authority, then you respond immediately and, and that's appropriate. Um, so we ceased the resupply immediately and um, the people whose science gear hadn't arrived um, on station uh, who were waiting for that were obviously directly impacted. So there were two or three key programs that were at Casey at the time that were delayed. Um, and we, you know, we tried to uh, support them as best we could. Any one Antarctic season always encounters hurdles. Um, this particular rescue is a very unusual event um, and every effort will be made that next season's program will be independent of this. Clearly there'll be some financial linkages so the, some of that may flow through but we would hope that longer term direct effects from the rescue wouldn't flow out into future years. At the time of the rescue, Nick Gales wrote in a letter to the science journal Nature that the expedition had mixed independent Antarctic tourism with the conduct of Antarctic science, and that science was the loser in this case. Kim Crosby is the executive director of the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, or IATO, a member association that represents the vast majority of commercial Antarctic tourism operators. She says the organisation supports Antarctic science in several ways. Within our bylaws, we do have objectives, and one of the objectives is to support, well, recognise the importance of science in Antarctica and also support as appropriate and where appropriate. 
And currently within our membership, that broadly takes four forms. The first very obvious one is the logistic support. Some of our operators also have a contract to use the ships either at the beginning or the end of the season to actually do a formal resupply of a base. And of course, that's much cheaper again for those National Antarctic programs to um, charter a ship that's already in position in there and knows the sailing grounds, etc. The other area is citizen science. And effect that is where research groups have approached us or our members um, and they've requested data, feedback. And for example, this is things like whale sightings. There's a, there's a humpback whale project that comes out of Bar Harbour in Maine, the USA. We're also working with a group that are studying killer whales from California. So there's an element and there's opportunities for citizen science in terms of just as part of the normal routine within the tourism programme to focus on environment and education. And then the last thing, of course, is financial. And in terms of some of these projects, the non-National Antarctic programme-based research projects, uh, you know, sometimes are also struggling for financing. And so our, our operators will also, you know, raise money on board or promote these research projects in case passengers would like to contribute financially to that. While people travelling to Antarctica are generally interested in the continent's natural history and science, Kim Crosby says IATO's members focus primarily on tourism and on safety. The real modus operandi of um, Antarctic tourism is this emphasis on education and enrichment and learning about why Antarctica is special, you know, the wildlife, etc. But the way it's been done in the past is really the focus is always on the tourism element of it so if you look at any of the brochures amongst any of the operators down there they'll say that they will depart on this day from this port and they'll return on that day to that port and in between they may visit this place or that place or they hope to see this or they hope to see that and so when citizen science projects come on board you know such as the whale sightings etc it's understood that those aren't heading to a specific destination at a specific time to collect specific information. It's done on a on an ad hoc basis. And, you know, that's the strength and the limitation of this kind of work. One of the expedition's leaders, Chris Tooney, says he's grateful for the effort Australia and the other nations put in to get the team off the stricken ship safely. While critics of the expedition had no issues with the rescue, some felt that its scientific goals and achievements had been oversold. One of them is the Australian Antarctic Division's Nick Gales. I'm really supportive of the whole notion of of really good communication of science. I think it's really important. I think it's something that uh, you know scientists should do as part of their job. They should both undertake the important work and communicate it really well. And it's critically important that it's communicated with great care and accuracy about how important it really is, how relevant it really is, and you know why people are doing the science. And you should neither devalue nor overly value the likely impact of your findings, especially before you've made the findings. I mean, at the point you're collecting the information, you don't know what you're going to find. And, uh, and I think we need to communicate really well, but we need to communicate really carefully. The expedition retracing the route of explorer Douglas Mawson used satellite technology and social media extensively, both during the voyage and while the ship was stuck, live tweeting, posting videos and conducting media interviews each day. Chris Turney admits that the criticism of the science goals took him by surprise. 
we were going to an area which is a major driver of the world's ocean and climate system. There were huge unknowns. You can monitor elements of that from satellites, but there's lots of analysis that you just can't do unless you actually go in there and make those measurements. We were going down there with what we felt were full credentials to do a huge amount of work. There have been downsides. Of course there have. We're getting caught, and that's not something we planned for or wanted. But scientifically, were there great questions there? It wasn't a recreation of a trip. That was a great way of engaging a public and, and getting them excited, hopefully, about science and exploration again. And Mawson is a fantastic example of that. Right before we left, we used a whole variety of different social media um, to engage a public and tell them what we were doing using Twitter, Google+, Hangouts on Air, where you could actually beam virtual, com real-time conversation. You could take people virtually to Antarctica and answer their questions. But one of the things that really surprised us when we got back in particular was a lot of the, um, some of the questions about the science and the value of the science that we were doing. And that was really surprising. Most Antarctic research projects are supported by national programs, which are typically funded by governments. The Australian Antarctic Division's acting director, Nick Gales, says combining research with tourism runs the risk of failure as organisers try to accommodate conflicting interests. You need to ensure that if you're bringing people along um, to participate in that, that they understand what they're doing. And the trap that is easily fallen into is when you end up with divided priorities that you can't really satisfy either of um, properly. So, you know, you need to provide the paying passengers with something of a of a, of a tourist experience, um, which requires time and, and effort of the vessel, and you need to provide the scientists with time to do their science. Now, unless you can budget that really well on the voyage to ensure you can do both properly, then um, then you can run into problems where either the science isn't sufficiently done or the, or the people who went along don't feel that they had a time that justified the expenditure of money they made. But Heritage Expedition's Aaron Russ sees plenty of opportunity and positive outcomes for this hybrid approach. It's something which I think should um, definitely be developed further and, and has a lot of positive um, potentials there really through science outreach and, and education and, and um, there's a lot of um, people who are more than um, capable of, of affording these types of expeditions who would never have the opportunity to participate in national science programs but um, are able to um, to become involved and, and, um, and enthused about the science which has been ta undertaken in Antarctica and uh, an expedition such as the AE is a great example of that in, in action. Antarctica is a continent of science governed by the Antarctic Treaty. Nobody owns Antarctica and any territorial claims were put aside when the treaty came into force in 1961. But as more and more countries sign up to the treaty, the scale of activities on and around the frozen continent, including tourism, fishing and the construction of research stations, is expanding as nations jostle for political power. The Shokarski's predicament is likely to be discussed at the upcoming annual meeting of treaty nations, which will be held in Brasilia next month. The Australian Antarctic Division will issue a report about the rescue. Kim Crosby of the tourism operators group IATO expects it might have repercussions on how nations approve Antarctic expeditions that lie outside national research programs. Within all the different treaty parties, there's a varying standard in terms of the assessment of non-governmental expeditions and their access south. And so one of the one of the things that we try and do within IATO 
is, of course, we cannot approve or not approve an activity taking place. That's way beyond our remit. But what we can do is make sure that any of our operators heading south are following the highest, ideally, standards um, in terms of their environmental management, but also in terms of mutual support and um, safety for each other. With respect to this incident and the coming treaty meeting, I think one of the interesting discussions is going to be around how governments, and it's a very difficult conversation for them, but how they can best assess how expeditions should be approved and, and going through that process. I think that's going to be one of the most interesting discussions within that. Within the Antarctic Treaty, the Environmental Protocol binds operators to a code of responsible environmental management, but it also has a liability-focused appendix. The supplementary section was adopted in 2005, but has so far only been ratified by nine of the 29 decision-making treaty member nations. Claire Christian is the director of the Antarctic and Southern Ocean Coalition, an umbrella organisation for non-governmental groups with an interest in environmental management in the polar regions. It has expert status at Antarctic treaty meetings. She says one of the consequences of the Shokalski rescue could be a stronger focus on liability. And if more nations ratified the appendix, it would mean that expeditions would have to provide proof of adequate insurance and emergency contingency plans as part of the approval process. We want people to appreciate Antarctica. We want people to go and do scientific research. But we also want to remind people that it is a very risky place to go. Um, it is, you know, unpredictable and it is difficult to rescue you if you get in trouble. So it, the, really the burden should be on, on you to make sure that you're prepared for this very unpredictable, harsh environment. Another discussion is taking place right now among members of the International Maritime Organization, which met in the past week to debate the introduction of a polar code. The code would be the first mandatory mechanism of its kind, and it has been proposed to make shipping in Arctic and Antarctic waters safer by introducing operational standards. Claire Christian says the Shokarski rescue only emphasizes how crucial proper emergency planning is. All ships, whether they're tourist research hybrids or just research expeditions or just tourist expeditions, they need to have really extensive contingency planning process. They need to figure out what happens if they do get into trouble. Um, they need to sort of look at the conditions where they're going and, and be fully prepared for everything that could happen. I think that maybe some ships might need to have more technology, types of sonar that can, can see further ahead and behind because sometimes, you know, ice, is, is unpredictable. And I think on any of these vessels, there needs to be some better requirements for the crew, their training. We had an incident, a tourist vessel, the Explorer, where the person who was looking at the ice had been in the Arctic, was familiar with Arctic ice, and thought that the ice that he was heading into in the Antarctic was fine. So he sort of drove the ship right into it, and it was harder ice than he expected, and it tore a hole in the ship, and the ship sank. Fortunately, no one was injured in that, but could have been a lot worse if there hadn't been a ship nearby to rescue the passengers, etc. Any of these ships really need to always prepare for the worst because they are so far away from help and ice conditions in some parts of Antarctica are really bad and they're, you know, getting worse. The Polar Code is expected to be in place later this year. I'm Veronica Maduna, and that's Inside for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send us an email to insight at radioNZ.co.nz or send us a tweet to rnz underscore insight. 
I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by William Saunders.